Welcome back, Ninja Nerds, to the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Today, we have an awesome topic we're going to be going over today, and that is on asthma. It's a pretty big boy of a topic, but we're going to take it step by step and make sure you all understand it. Before we get started, make sure, go on ninjanerd.org, grab your membership, get get the notes, download the illustrations, get everything you need, and follow along with us here. Zach? How you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm really excited for this one. I, I always learn something, so I'm 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 ready to. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, asthma is a pretty big topic. It is a lot to cover, but it's something, it's one of those diseases you really have to respect. Um, and these patients, you know, they can really be sick and crash on you. So it's important to really know this topic. Alrighty. So then let's not waste any time. Let's get right into it. Zach, can you start this podcast off by telling our awesome listeners out there about the basic pathophys of asthma? Absolutely. So the pathophys of asthma, I think it just comes down to there's a reversible hyperreactivity or hyper-responsiveness of the tracheobronchial tree. So those airways, they just get super, super inflamed and they have this intense bronchoconstriction. And that's kind of the basic pathophysiology is hyper-responsiveness, a lot of inflammation and bronchoconstriction. Now, are there any like big cytokines we have to watch out for? the chemical mediators that really start this inflammation? Absolutely. That's actually a really good question because I think one of the big things that's really important is that a lot of these cytokines that we're going to talk about here, there is actually drugs that we can use to target those specific cytokines. And so some of those that are involved is the histamine um, release, particularly from mast cells. So mast cells degranulate and release histamine. And the primary trigger for that is usually activating these antibodies on their surface called IgE antibodies. So that'd be one histamine release due to the activation of mast cells by IgE antibodies. The other one is leukotrienes. These are really, really big ones. And then prostaglandins are also really big cytokines that are definitely involved in this inflammation and hyper-responsiveness of the airways in patients with asthma. So my question is this. Do these airways just say, hey, time to light this puppy up. We're going to just <laughs> ruin this person with bronchoconstriction, inflammation, just a big storm of bad or are there really like specific triggers that you, you should probably be on the lookout for? Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, there's a lot of triggers. Um, and I think the easiest way to look at these is to try to break them up into two kind of like categories or phenotypes. So there's an intrinsic type. Um, and I usually just like to think about this as the non-allergic causes or triggers. And then the extrinsic or the allergic triggers. So intrinsic are your non-allergic triggers. And these particularly the most common one that'll set a patient into an acute asthma, uh, asthma exacerbation is going to be infection. So upper respiratory tract infections like viral, upper respiratory tract infections, sinusitis, things of that nature. Also really watch out for patients on for particular drugs in their medication list. So are they taking a beta blocker for some reason for high blood pressure or tachycardia? Are they on aspirin? And that's a really, really big one. I don't forget about aspirin as well. Now, we've covered this topic already on, on YouTube. We've, we made a video on it, and I could swear that there is a, there's a triad, Zach, for this one, right, help, to help you remember this? Absolutely, yeah. There is a triad associated with aspirin and asthma. It's called Samter's triad, and Samter's triad is basically three components here that are associated with asthma. Asthma is also associated very commonly with nasal polyps and a very intense aspirin sensitivity, so definitely remember that one as well. The other drugs that I would also remember besides beta blockers and aspirin associated with that Samter's triad is ACE inhibitors. Those are really, really big ones as well. So watch out because they can cause that dry cough due to the bradykinins that are accumulating. The other um, intrinsic factor is kind of environmental factors, and especially like cold air and exercise as well. So those would be some of the things that I think would be intrinsic. So infections, drugs, beta blocker, aspirin, ACE inhibitors, and then cold air and exercise. For the extrinsic trigger, it's really just allergens. It's an allergic type of problem. So think about allergens, pollen, ragweed, all of those different things of that nature. 
Now, something tells me that this triad, the, we're not done with it yet. Samson's triad, we got one. Tell me we got one more, Zach. Absolutely. We got the atopic triad. Atopic triad. Okay. Yeah. So generally in patients who have um, some type of allergic rhinitis, they got atopic dermatitis, they also can have a pretty common association with asthma. So definitely think about that as well, especially for your board questions. Samter's triad, atopic triad, big things for the exam. So that's definitely, I think, the big things for the pathophys, the triggers behind asthma, Rob. All right. Then let's go into the next chapter here, features and complications. So, Zach, when I think asthma, I think of wheezing, I think of coughing, shortness of breath. Maybe I even think of a pediatric patient. Help me sum up this section really with the clinical features of someone with asthma. So, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head. That is the classic triad for these patients. So, definitely thinking about dyspnea or shortness of breath, thinking about wheezing and coughing. So, there's another triad. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Doesn't end. Triad city, man. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely these patients do classically present with shortness of breath or dyspnea, wheezing and coughing. One of the big things is that the coughing particularly tends to happen at night. So, that's definitely something to think about. I think something else that's worth remembering, though, for asthma is those worrisome findings, things that will really pucker up that stank hole that <laughs> can kind of get you a little scared um, and kind of keep you on your toes for these patients. And that's why asthma can really turn around on you at any point in time. So right. I would really be in the bedside looking at how the patient's respiratory rate. That's oftentimes one of the worrisome factors for me is if I see a patient breathing at over 30 breaths per minute, that's pretty uncomfortable. And that makes me kind of nervous that eventually they may tucker out. Um, or that their obstruction can get worse. They're going to continue to kind of hypoventilate or they're going to have some trouble. So to give me is one big thing. Um, also just increase work of breathing. If they're using accessory muscles, their belly, their neck muscles, their nasal flaring, intercostal retractions, that's pretty scary. Um, I don't like that because again, it's a sign that eventually they're going to progress and kind of worsen. Um, the other thing is if their breathing is so bad that they can't even like complete sentences in front of you because they're, I can't, that, that's really scary sign as well. So I would look for the inability to kind of really be able to speak in full sentences. Maybe they're only saying kind of like one word answers. That's definitely worrisome. Um, the other thing that you can potentially work, look for is if you do have like an A line, or if you're looking at the blood pressure and monitoring it during like inspiration and expiration, you may be able to see something potentially called pulsus paradoxus. Hold that thought. <laughs> now, again, if I'm not mistaken, I pay attention to engineers. You, you might be surprised, but I'm, I'm watching, I'm learning. I learn a lot from this guy. In the the lecture on asthma. I remember pulses paradoxes. Uh, let me th let me see if I got this one. All right, big daddy. I believe <laughs> I believe it's a drop in your systolic blood pressure greater than 10 millimeters of mercury during inspiration. All right, give me some, man. Give me some. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely correct. It's usually due to some severe right heart strain, um, and that can cause that septal bowing from the right ventricle into the left ventricle, kind of reducing that left heart venous return, or in general, it can just decrease left heart venous return to those kind of like gas trapping and high intrathoracic pressure. So that's definitely correct. The last sign, I think the most ominous sign, is generally a silent chest. Okay. So if I take, and obviously I auscultate over the chest, I, I would potentially hear some expiratory wheezing. Obviously, that's one of the classic points of the triad that we talked about. But if I hear almost like no air movement, that's definitely concerning. That tells me that there's like very little air coming in. So they're definitely hypoventilating. They're not taking in good, adequate tidal volumes, but also they're obstructing their airway so much that not much air is leaving out of the chest as well. So that's a definitely a severe obstruction and an ominous sign for a patient. So definitely keep your eyes out for those things. Alrighty. Great. Thank you, Zach. Before we move on to diagnostic studies, I want to kind of put a situation in your mind here, Zach, a worst case scenario. We just talked about our, our podcast on COPD. 
What if we have a patient that has COPD and asthma? What is what do you really do there? What's that like? Oh, that's a great question. I think like oftentimes there may be a mixture of the two. And oftentimes because they kind of fit within that similar category of an obstructive lung disease in general, you can pretty much treat them relatively the same and you might get the same outcome. Because they're both obstructive lung diseases. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, yeah that'd be a pretty bad uh, a recipe there. Someone with COPD <laughs> and asthma. Yeah, we often see it. So there is definitely <laughs> intermingling yeah. of that in the ICU. You're going to see some of that kind of mixture of stuff. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, then let's move on to diagnosis. Zach, how do we diagnose someone with asthma? Yeah. So I think one of the big things is that oftentimes we think hypoxia is the clear feature for these patients. That's not always really the case. Sometimes they can hold their SATs really, really well. I'd say if you do see hypoxia, that's a pretty like nasty finding for the patient. That really tells me that they're in some severe respiratory distress. They're definitely hypoventilating. They're not taking adequate tidal volumes. They're gas trapping. I think it, it really to think about it, if they're taking like very low tidal volumes, all they're probably doing is just moving dead space, which is gas that isn't participating in gas exchange change. Um, and that's a terrible situation. So that'd be a sign of very, very poor uh, ventilation if they had hypoxia. And I'd be very concerned in an asthma patient with that. Um, the next thing is if I have a patient who's really working hard to breathe, they're dyspneic, they're wheezing. I don't think it's a bad idea to just kind of, and especially if they have hypoxia, get a chest x-ray. A chest x-ray is quick. You can do it portable. You can get it the bed done at the bedside and it can exclude a lot of other pathologies, especially if they have a big fat pneumo, um, if they have pneumonia, if they have like a massive pulmonary edema, ARDS. So those are potential findings. I wouldn't really go looking for like the flat diaphragm, the, you know, hyperlucency of the lungs, et cetera. Um, those potentially may be there, but that's not super diagnostic of asthma. But I would use that to kind of exclude other pathologies. Um, ABGs, not necessarily tests. That Your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think it's that necessary of a test that you you need to use it here. I think using your clinical gestalt, your bedside exam is really kind of important because if you think about it, if the patient's breathing really, really fast, um, they're tachypnic. And then obviously, you know, they're going to be blowing off their CO2. They may have some degree of a respiratory alkalosis. So their pH is going to be high. Their CO2 is going to be potentially low. I think what also could be a nominous sign, but you can see this is if they do have that silent chest, they're hypoventilating, they're not taking adequate tidal volumes. They just look really bad and they're starting to tucker out and slow down or their obstruction is getting worse. Then you might start seeing their respiratory rates come lower, their tidal volumes get lower. And then now because of that, their CO2 is going to build. They're going to start having a respiratory acidosis. So you could start seeing the switch of that. Again, I don't think poking, you know, these patients every six hours is, is key, but that's something to think about. And it just shows you how, how crucial your clinical exam is, right? Yeah, absolutely. You just have to have a thorough clinical exam, really just evaluate the patient, look at the patient. You don't need to poke them in the big red every six hours, <laughs> absolutely. as you would say, right? Yeah. You don't need to do that. Yeah, these um, poor patients getting stuck. At, exactly. Yeah. So have a thorough clinical exam and, and you should be good. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's really the big thing. And I think also if you really are looking to monitor someone's like acid base status, their respiratory gas status, I think you can get it a VBG. So a venous blood gas. So if they have IVs, their, their IVs are pulling back blood, you know, pull off a VBG. They're relatively, their performance is relatively similar to an ABG. Um, there is some literature out there that if you're looking at it, it as long as the SO2 on the, um, VBG is like greater than 70%. It's relatively similar to that of an ABG. So it might minimize some of the pain and sticking these patients a lot. So cool. Um, the other thing I would do besides, um, chest x-ray looking at their SpO2 plus or minus an ABG, particularly VBG, if I really wanted to, um, is I think 
it's important to understand here that if you have a patient who has asthma or you sus- are suspicious that they have asthma, the true diagnostics isn't coming from, you know, a, uh, an SpO2, a chest x-ray, an ABG, et cetera. It really comes down to the most kind of like gold standard diagnostic test, which is PFTs. So you can't say that someone has asthma just because they're wheezing, they're short of breath and they're coughing at night um, and they have some of the triggers. You have to use the PFTs in that way. And if you guys remember, we look at the FEV1 over the FEC from that spirometry study that they get. And if the ratio between those is less than 70%, it's definitely suggestive of an obstructive lung disease. Um, But really what you're looking for is you're looking at that FEV1 prior to giving them what's called a bronchodilator and then after giving them a bronchodilator. So you're checking the FEV1 to see if it's reversible. Remember I told you that this is a reversible disease. So if you give them a bronchodilator and their FEV1 goes from whatever it was prior to greater than 12% in these patients after the bronchodilator, that could be suggestive of, of an asthma. And know, just patient. as we discussed during COPD, it would be the opposite, right? It would be less than 12%. Absolutely. Yep. That's absolutely correct. So I think that's the big things to be thinking about. Now, generally, these patients... If you check that DLCO that we talked about, it could be normal. It could be increased. There's no consensus on this. It's kind of depending upon the patient, but that's really important. The other tests that you could do, let's say that a patient isn't having like an asthma exacerbation or you think that they need to kind of, you want to prove that their tracheobronchial tree is hyperreactive or hyperresponsive. Oftentimes when you give patients this drug called methacholine in normal tracheobronchial trees, they're not going to intensely like bronchoconstrict. And a patient with asthma, they will intensely bronchoconstrict their airway. And so what we do is in an asthma patient, if we really wanted to induce kind of a change and see if this actually proves their hyper responsiveness, again, adding some more support to asthma, you can give them, well, first off, obtain the FEV1 that you did prior to the bronchodilator and then give them the methacholine. And then after the methacholine is given, you check their FEV1 to see, did it decrease? Because if they're going to bronchoconstrict int- intensely, you're going to cause less air to move out and their FEV1 will increase. And if the FEV1 increase is greater than 20%, that's definitely more likely suggestive of asthma. So definitely think about that. The other thing I think that's really important for these patients is oftentimes when they're in the emergency department, we are not going to whip out PFTs and bronchial provocation tests because that's going to be time consuming and it's not absolutely necessary. And what we can do sometimes is in a really acute asthma exacerbation to assess the severity and their potential response to therapy because um, we can't hook these patients up to P- you know doing the spirometry all the time. We can use this little tiny thing called a peak flow and it measures what's called peak expiratory flow rate. And what we do is we have them take a deep breath in and breathe out as hard as they can into this little peak flow. And it pushes this little kind of like the like indicator up and down throughout this thing. And basically what you want to do is you want to get their baseline peak expiratory flow rate. And that's based upon like their age, their weight, their gender, a whole bunch of different types of factors. And once you find out what their baseline is, according to like that average point, what you're looking to do is, okay, here's the number generally in their age, their gender, their potential thing, it should be about here, but they're not, they're definitely a little bit lower kind of supports that their asthma exacerbation is kind of a little bit bad. Now, what I can do is I can treat them and we'll talk about treatment in a little bit, but maybe I give them a bronchodilator to kind of release that bronchoconstriction. And then later or I give them anti-inflammatories to reduce the inflammation. Then what I do is I check and see, did their peak expiratory 
respiratory flow rate improve? Were they able to expire more air as we treated them with bronchodilators and steroids? And generally what you'll do is you'll check to see after you've been giving them these medications, did their peak expiratory flow rate increase? Because if it did, that may be indicative that they are improving and they're responding to treatment. If it went down or it's not going anywhere, it tells you that they're either worsening despite treatment or they're not improving or not making any changes with the treatment. So generally... You look at the peak expiratory flow rate at baseline in comparison to after you give them treatments. What you're looking for, ideally in a perfect world, is greater than a 15% increase in their baseline uh, peak expiratory flow rate. So that's kind of the things that I would go through in the diagnostic approach here, Rob. Alrighty, so then that brings us to treatment. This is the last chapter here on this uh, podcast episode. And similar to the COPD episode, same type of scenario here, or rather two scenarios, Zach. So we're going to look at number one. Uh, a patient's having an acute asthma exacerbation coming through the door, getting worse by the second. Save them. Tell me how you plan to do that. And then scenario two is that there's an established diagnosis of asthma. They're not in an, an acute exacerbation and they need a plan of how you would approach their treatment in a stepwise fashion if they're progressively getting worse. Absolutely. So I think, again, so acute exacerbation of asthma, there's pretty much a, I'd say like a three principle kind of like treatment process here. So bronchodilation is key because again, these patients are having bronchoconstriction. So bronchodilate them. And generally the regimen I like to do is I like to give them duonebs, which as you guys remember from the COPD is just a combination of ipratropium bromide, um, which is a short acting kind of like a muscarinic antagonist, as well as albuterol, which is a short acting beta agonist. And I'll do that like every six hours. And then sometimes if they really, really need it, <clears throat> I'll do what's called an hour long. So I'll put them on like an hour long albuterol treatment, which may be pretty helpful. Um, sometimes if you need to, in the between those six hours spans, they may get a little bit short of breath. They may have some increased wheezing. Sometimes I'll throw some albuterol nebs on them every two hours as well. Another drug I like to just add on, I don't think that there's any like negativity. I think it's just generalized goodness is um, IV magnesium. Um, it will help to be able to block some of those calcium channels in the smooth muscle and bronchodilate as well. So I'll give them like a two gram magrider as well. That might be beneficial. So we obviously know the hallmark here is bronchoconstriction and inflammation. So the other thing is I'll do is I'll try to reduce the inflammation. And so the way that we do that is corticosteroids. So steroids, I generally want to give these patients IV um, because if they're like, if they're in an ICU setting or they're in a really severe exacerbation, they can't speak in full sentences. It's unlikely they're going to be able to properly swallow a medication. Um, so in that situation, I'll do IV methylprednisolone, like 125 milligram slug. Um, or, you know, if they potentially, as they improve, I might switch them over to a PO med like prednisone, uh, maybe 50 to 60. 60 milligrams, but that's generally going to be the thing to reduce the inflammation. Now, the other thing is that you have to improve this patient's work of breathing, their tachypnea, their poor ventilation, right? They're not ventilating, they're hypoventilating, they're not taking adequate tidal volumes. And because they're not taking adequate tidal volumes, they're breathing faster, they're utilizing accessory muscles, they're obstructing their airways, and they're not getting air out, they're air trapping. So what I need to do is to ventilate them. In order to ventilate them, I like to utilize BiPAP. So bilevel positive airway pressure, just like we talked about this in COPD, you're given the positive airway pressure to kind of stent or kind of like splint those uh, bronchioles and alveoli open and keep them open. And that allows the gas that's being trapped within their airways to be exhaled, clears their dead space, and then allows for their lungs to properly deflate, removes all their auto peep, if you will. 
And what that does is that lowers the residual volume, their total lung capacity, brings their diaphragm and their chest wall back to kind of the normal position. And that allows for them to now be able to take a deeper breath, generate larger tidal volumes and breathe at a slower rate to allow for them to have less effort to breathe. So you can see how doing that would really improve their ventilation and reduce their work of breathing. Oftentimes though, these patients do not like, just like in a COPD patient, they don't like this mask. Imagine sticking your face out of a car driving like 70 miles an hour. It's very uncomfortable, um, that kind of pressure that's being pushed into your face. So oftentimes sedating these patients may be beneficial. One of the things I think that's really cool to mention here is we use it sometimes in, um, in the ICU and sometimes they'll definitely use it in eMERGE is um, ketamine drips. Um, sometimes that's a nice drug because it gives you a little bit of sedation. It kind of treats the pain. And the other benefit is it bronchodilates. So you kind of get a really nice mixture of that to keep the patient calm, tolerate the BiPAP, and even get a little bit of bronchodilation in the process. Sometimes what I prefer is a dexmedetomidine drip, which is Presidex, and that might give them a little bit of anxiolysis to tolerate the BiPAP. Just got to watch out for bradycardia in those patients. But that's kind of what I think is really necessary. I would really, in the ventilation scheme, try to avoid intubating these patients. Give them some time. Sometimes you have to sit on your hands. Don't sit on them for too long. You got to really get on top of these patients because if they start progressing, it's going to be really, really difficult um, to intubate these patients. It can be really, really challenging. So be careful with that. And if you do have to intubate, put a big tube in just so that you can reduce their airway resistance. I try to find a big tube, um, but that should really be the last resort here up. The next scenario is that chronic asthma patient. They have the established diagnosis and they just want to know, okay, well, I've been doing what you tell me to do, doc, or, you know, and I'm not getting better. So how do I kind of approach these patients in a stepwise fashion as they continue to kind of get worse? So obviously the first thing you should start off with these patients is just an albuterol, PRN. Whenever you develop shortness of breath, wheezing, kind of any of the classic asthma symptoms, take a couple hits of that. Okay, that's not working. All right, well, then now what I'll do is I want you to keep doing that. I want that to be the same thing. Keep using that as you need to. And then use an inhaled corticosteroid. That's going to reduce the inflammation. Okay, so we'll do a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. All right, that's not working, doc. So now we're on step three. Okay, continue the SABA. So keep doing the albuterol. Let's keep doing the low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. But let's now add on a longer-acting bronchodilator since you're using your short-acting bronchodilator so much. Okay. Did that doc, still not working. Okay, continue the short-acting bronchodilator, continue the long-acting bronchodilator, but now let's up the dose of the inhaled corticosteroid from a low dose to a medium dose. All right, doc, I did that, still not getting better. Okay, continue the short-acting bronchodilator, continue the long-acting bronchodilator, but now up the dose to a high-dose corticosteroid on the inhaled corticosteroid. All right, doc, I've done that. Still not getting better. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the short-acting bronchodilator, the long-acting bronchodilator. We're going to increase the inhaled corticosteroid. We're going to keep it at high dose. But now, since you're not responding to the inhaled corticosteroid, I got to give you systemic steroids to reduce this, uh, the inflammation. So I'll do oral steroids like prednisone like we talked about. Now, that's generally the schema here. So short-acting bronchodilator, then the next step is short-acting bronchodilator with a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. Then short-acting bronchodilator, long-acting bronchodilator. 
and then we go to a low dose. Then we go short acting, long acting bronchodilator, medium dose corticosteroid. Then we go short acting, long acting, high dose inhaled corticosteroid. Then short acting, long acting, high dose inhaled corticosteroid and oral steroid. The other thing that you could potentially consider to add on to these patients is prophylactic medications. Um, could be the, what's what we talked about before, Rob, with the cytokines. So leukotrienes, we can actually antagonize that, that cytokine and oppose it reducing some of the inflammation, the bronchoconstriction. So I can use a drug called Montelucast, but it's really a prophylactic drug in like aspirin or allergic or exercise-induced asthma. So think about those kind of like phenotypes. The other one is the mast cell stabilizer. Remember I told you that the mast cells release lots of histamines and cause a lot of inflammation. Well, giving a drug called chromalin will actually stabilize those mast cells and prevent them from releasing histamine. So this is also a prophylactic and exercise-induced asthma and cold air-induced asthma. The last one is amalizumab. And this is actually a really interesting one. It's a mono clonal antibody and it blocks the IgE antibodies on the um, the mast cells that release all that histamine. And so we would, again, be blocking one of those pathways. Um, really, this is for that refractory, severe refractory allergic asthma. I would really think about that. And you can even add that on um, to your kind of chronic asthma stepwise fashion if they're really not responding to the increase in the inhaled corticosteroid and the oral steroid. That's not a bad one to add on, especially if they were refractory allergic asthma. Um, um, lastly, I would just try to avoid a lot of the intrinsic and extrinsic triggers as possible. So avoid exposure uh, exposure to pollen, you know, ragweed, all the allergens. Um, try to minimize exposure to beta blockers, aspirin, ACE inhibitors. Um, use your prophylactic medications and exposure to cold air or exercise. Um, and just, you know, treating those underlying disorders, I think, is the key thing here, Rob. All right, Zach, you've been talking forever. Um, <laughs> let me finally interject here for a second. Um, for those of you who weren't writing that down, God bless you. I, <laughs> I, I wish you all the best. Um, acute, acute asthma is, is not too hard, but the chronic asthma regimen was, wow. Yeah, there was a lot. Um, I'm not even going to try and recap that, Zach. Could you possibly give a quick recap um, just so we get the gist of it? <laughs> Absolutely. So acute asthma, definitely like basic thing is short acting bronchodilators, IV, PO steroids, particularly IV, magnesium, BiPAP, and intubated as a last resort. In the chronic asthma patient, it's always short-acting bronchodilators, PRN, long-acting bronchodilators daily, inhaled corticosteroid and increase that from low to medium to high dose, PO steroids if you get to the high dose. Then on top of that, we also think it's the prophylactic drugs. So leukotriene receptor antagonists, in this situation has a prophylaxis and aspirin-induced asthma, allergic asthma. Mast cell stabilizers as a prophylaxis in cold air and exercise-induced asthma, and amalizumab if there's refractory allergic asthma. That was much more digestible. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. That was yeah, great. Absolutely. Again, it's it's a lot of information you have to go through. So so read over it as much as you would like. Check out our YouTube video. We have this already you know made and, and available for you. Um, but I think we did the, a really great job at just laying out all the information you have to know. And it was an awesome podcast episode. Thank you, Zach. Oh, thank you, man. And uh, yeah, engineers, I hope that you guys enjoyed this podcast. I hope that you learned a lot about asthma. And uh, yeah, as always, thank you, love you. And until next time. <laughs>